Why don't we open our Bibles? Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning there, I just want to thank God for those who labor to make um, worship through song happen here at TCC, those who have uh, labored hard to practice and to be here, those who work back in that booth back there for sound and for the visual team, and just thankful to God. Um, we don't say it enough, and I just wanted to publicly say thanks. Yes, amen. Thanks to God for them. And I thank uh, God for you as we are uh, turning to uh, the book of Ephesians that uh, you came out on Daylight Savings Time. So the first service, they get an extra uh, crown in heaven uh, one day. And I don't know if you know this, but, you know, they are talking about voting to where they don't do this anymore, um, where daylight savings time would not happen. And I really believe the best time to take that vote is tomorrow, because I think most people will be pretty much ready to say, do away with it. So thankful to God that you count worshiping together as of a high value that you would, with your one hour less sleep, uh, show up here. So we're thankful to God, and let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. Uh, that's our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you. You can snag that. Um, and we use the English Standard Version if you want to use an app on your phone, and that might help you. But uh, we will look at this text together. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and then I'll pray. So let me read this. For this reason, meaning verses 3 through 14, as he recounted every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. We praise you that you birthed a burden in the Apostle Paul to pray for this church and that you loved us enough to record it in Holy Scripture. That your infallible word would now be given to us a prayer to us, for us, for the glory of your name. It is, it is to your great name that we gather this morning. And right now I just... I just pray, oh God, I pray that you would have mercy on us. We're a needy people. 
I pray for those who do not believe that or who are more aware of the needs of others than their own, that, Father, you would just create a corporate sense of humility and desperation. We need you right now to move in power. That's nothing I can make happen, and that's nothing that anyone in this room can make happen, and so we pray. We call out to you that by your spirit, you would take your word and change us from the inside out. And Father, that you would use us. Use us to spread your name to the ends of the earth. Father, give us breath for your fame. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Represented in our church are um, many of those who have gone to school. (laughs) Schooling uh, represents a large part of this crew, whether it is elementary school or middle school or high school or college or beyond. You go to school to learn. And so as students, you go to get things in your your head. And so we've got some who are here from multiple different uh, colleges who are maybe studying engineering or who are in the tech field or who are studying agriculture or who are studying all kinds of things. And you go to school in order that you can get this knowledge base of things in here so that you can do a job and, and make some money, support a family, give generously, those kind of things. So knowledge is crucial for how we live. However, we've also got some in our church that are in a season of desiring to date, those who desire to find this significant other, this spouse. And so if you came to me and said, hey, I found someone, I found someone and I know them. I know their height. I know where they went to school. I know their hometown." I actually know their siblings and their parents. I've studied up. So on our first date, I'm going to ask them to marry me. You would say, that's a stupid approach. That's a bad idea. Now, I know no one in here would do something like that. I pray to God that would not happen. But we all think that that is a little bit ridiculous because we understand something. That knowing facts about an individual doesn't mean you know them. That when you know someone, it's a sense that you've listened. You've heard their story. You know their pains, their joys, what excites them, what grieves them, their fears. You've listened. You've shared. You've shared your hurts, your dreams, your burdens, It's a relationship. It's a listening. It's a sharing. It takes time. That's knowing. And what Paul prays, one request, one request for the church at Ephesus is that they, and vicariously through them as a church, that we would know God. That's his prayer, that we would know him and know what he has done for us and that we would love him and adore him. We would listen to him and we would share with him. It would be a relationship. It would not be, yes, I know. I know my God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rose from the dead. I know these facts. So the devil knows those. 
Do you know him? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Do you know him? And Paul in this passage right here is praying. He's praying for us. Now there's all kinds of prayers in the scriptures. There's prayers of praise. And there's prayers of repentance. Oh God, forgive me. And there's prayers of adoration or thanksgiving. God, thank you. And there are prayers of just asking prayers. God, we need, we need, we need. But here's what's common to all of them. What's common to all of them is that prayer is so that we might know the one we pray to and that we might look more like our God by praying. Prayer is meant to help us to know God and to be changed to look more like him. That's why we pray. And that's why Paul is praying that he might be changed and be more like God. That's why he's also praying that we would know him and therefore follow his example. That we would be a praying people. A praying people. Now, over the past several weeks, we have stared at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. We've stared at this passage, and as we have looked into it, the glorious plan of God and the provision of Jesus and the seal of the Holy Spirit has been laid out as a buffet before us that anyone, don't, take, don't tell me your background is too bad. The story is anyone who hears the good news of Jesus Christ and trusts in him, you have a story. A story of salvation that began before times eternal, began before the foundation of the earth, began before time as we know it even began. It began in God. Every spiritual blessing is ours by simple faith, not by doing for God, but what he has done for us. And it began before the foundation of the earth that God chose a people in him. In Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the earth, predestining us to adoption. That's what it says. I'm just quoting the text. To adoption. And he predestined us to be conformed to his image, to look like Jesus. He predestined us to be his treasured possession, his inheritance. This happened not based upon us being good or lovely enough. It happened based upon his love. His affection, his goodness, his beauty, solely owing to him so that we have zero to boast in. And yet, in time, he sent his son to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death that our sins deserved. And all of our sins, past, present, future, were placed upon the perfect spotless Son of God upon his shoulders and he bore the wrath that our sins deserved. He died our death. Yet three days later was raised from the dead. His blood purchased our redemption. That's what it says. Purchased our redemption and our forgiveness. We can be forgiven and made new, washed clean. We are his children by simple faith alone. We are justified, declared not guilty. And he promises to constantly be with us and change us into his image from one degree of glory to another. How does he do that? Because when the gospel came to your ears, that is the good news that you can't save yourself and Jesus Christ alone can save you. 
When that good news came to you and you were called to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus, when you said, Jesus, I can't fix myself. I love you. I need your death on my behalf and I believe you were raised from the dead. When that happened, something miraculous happened. The Spirit of God, the living God himself came and lived inside of you. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and he's a guarantee that what God began before times eternal, before the foundation of the earth, he will complete and you'll get to the end. It's all owing to his grace. God's plan, the the son's provision, the seal and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. This is what we have stared at. And this right here is what Paul is saying leads him to pray. You see that? Verse 15. For this reason. All I did was just summarize verses 3 through 14. Now, 3 through 14, all that I just talked about is one sentence in Greek. One sentence. The English teacher's nightmare. It would have been all marked up. It's run on and run on. Take heart. You don't have to have perfect grammar when you go to God. You don't have to have it polished up. You don't have to have MLA all memorized. Go to him. Just lay it before him. And you know what's beautiful? As Paul just reflected upon our great God's salvation and that by simple faith, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours, it led him to say and to pray another really long sentence, which is our text today. It's also one sentence. Verse 15 through 23. He just prays it. One sentence. Our God wants us as we are, where we are, crying out to him. And he says, for this reason, I pray. But what is his prayer? His one prayer is that we may know. I want you to look at it. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know That you may know God and specifically you may know three things about this God. And that will guide us through our time today. He's like, I just want you to be convinced. In your darkest times, I just want you to be persuaded. In your trials, I want you to know, to know, to know that there is one, a hope to be had. Two, there is a love to rest in. And three, there is a power at work in you and through you. I just want you to be convinced of it. I want you to be convinced that there is a hope to be had, a love to rest in, and a power at work in you and through you. We'll see that in the text. But before we get there, that is verses 18 and following, we need to look at verses 15 through 17. That is what precedes those three things. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is who Paul is praying to, who he is praying for, and what he is praying for. That's going to get us to the middle of the passage. Who is he praying to? Well, he's praying to God, the Father of glory. Why do I say that? Look at verse 16. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another evidence that he's talking about a relationship. Jesus is not just a person over here. He's our Lord. 
He's my Lord. And he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may work. Who's he praying to? He's praying to the Father of glory. Now, there's a lot of ground that we have covered over these past several weeks. And so we're building on a lot that we will not take time to deal with today. The only reason I had any ounce of courage to preach verses 15 through 23 when it took like four or five sermons to preach verses 13 through 14 is that we've covered some ground that's repeated in these prayers. Like for instance, Father of glory. We spent a whole time dealing with, a whole sermon dealing with to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory grace. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. We dealt with the fact that God is worthy of all glory and praise. We also dealt with the fact that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Trinity. And as we dealt with that, we believe, as we see here, it says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not God. It means that Jesus is subordinate or submissive to God the Father. And yet, uniquely, in essence, one, equal. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in essence. These things we dealt with in the past, we will move forward. Also, when we get to this idea of a glorious inheritance, that's something that we wrestled through in verse 11, when this glorious inheritance is God making us his treasured possession. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And when you hear about in the heavenly places, when you see that in verse 20, that's something that we dealt with when we went through verse 3, in the heavenly places. So we're going to just keep moving as we seek to say, who is he praying to? He is praying to God the Father through the provision of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is praying to the Father of glory because of the provision of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is he praying for? Now, that's where we got to go to the end of the passage. The end of the passage, verse 22, it says, And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus the Son, and gave him as head... Over all things. Now, why does he start talking about head? Because he tells us who this prayer is for. This prayer is for the church or the body. You see that? The church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why does he use this image? We, the church, are the body. And yet, my hands and legs, they will not move if you lop off my nugget. That's just how it rolls. You get rid of this, everything goes. Jesus is the head. Everything is functioning in and through him. The head gets the glory. If I'm talking to you, I look at you eye to eye. I don't stare at your palm. It's because this is what's most important. This is where the essence of a person is. It's found right here. He is the head. We're the body. 1 Corinthians tells us that we are all many members of one body. Some are a thumb, some are a pinky toe, some are a calf muscle, some are an arm, whatever it is. Diverse, yet one body. 
And oh, how tempting it is to say, but oh, hey, I want that. I want to be more prominent like they are. No, we're one body working for the aim that the head is seen, that Jesus is seen. I do not need my pinky toe to be seen, and you don't want to see it. I do not need my thumb to be seen. Jesus needs to be seen. You don't need to be seen. I don't need to be seen. He needs to be seen. He's the head. We're the body, functioning together in unity so that the head gets the glory. Jesus gets the praise. Who is he praying to? He's praying to God, the Father. Who is he praying for? He's praying for the body, the church. He's praying for the church. And he's praying for the church, which is the body. And look at this weird phrase in verse 23. The church is the fullness of Jesus. That's weird. I thought Jesus was pretty full in and of himself. How is the church the fullness of Jesus? Well, Jesus told us, it's better for me to leave and to send the Holy Spirit to you. Why is that? Because when Jesus came to us, the incarnate human Jesus, fully God, fully man, when he came, he was destined to one location at a time. He was in Galilee at this moment, and he was in Capernaum at this moment, one location at one time. He says, it's better for me to go that I might give you the Holy Spirit so that God is with you always, even to the end of the earth. What is he saying? You've heard the phrase, we're his hands and feet. There's nothing lacking in Jesus at all. So how are we his fullness? The only thing that's lacking is his physical presence all over the world. So he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell his people that we might be the full representation of him to the ends of the earth as long as we have breath. The fullness of Jesus who fills all, he fills all believers in all, all over the earth, all over all creation, we are his mouthpiece. We are his ambassadors. Now, this is also speaking to what he will also talk about in chapter 2, that we are a multi-ethnic people. We are people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now, you're like, oh, you might be forcing that one. No, sir. No, ma'am. I'm glad you asked. Are you forcing it? Because that's what you should ask as a good Bible listener and reader. I'm not forcing it. Colossians 3 tells us so. Colossians and Ephesians, they mirror each other and sometimes they help us interpret one another. Listen to Colossians 3.11. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Same type of language. We are the fullness of Christ. He is in all types of his people. Their ethnicity, all types of socioeconomic stances. He is in Jews and Gentiles in order that we might go to the ends of the earth. I tell you, it just makes my jaw drop sometimes. This is why I love church planting. Because I get to hear stories about people who have sought to take the gospel into areas where there might not be healthy churches or there's not a gospel witness among a specific community and you just begin to hear. You hear stories about how God saves people from all kinds of backgrounds. But I tell you what really excites me is when I hear also about how churches are being planted all over the globe. 
when I hear stories about Africa and India and Indonesia and Bangladesh and China, when I hear stories about God going through his people all over the globe and the same gospel that's being spoken here is spoken there and life is given and churches are started, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. I tell you, you want to feel small? Go into some context and cross a culture where you don't understand anything that's going on. Go into some part of our town where they're speaking a language that you do not know and just sit there. And what happens? Go to some part of our globe Take one of our trips that we go on and you go and you just place yourself in a context where you don't know what's going on and you will feel about this small. You'll feel like you want to hide. You'll feel massively insecure because you have no clue what's happening around you. And you know what makes my heart do when I'm in those situations? After the fear kind of subsides, there's a sense of thanksgiving. My God knows everything that's being said right now. My God knows. My God is here. My God is at work all over the place. And he promises to be at work in and through his people. We, not just varsity Christians, not just the people that we set up here and we lay hands on, every one of you, ambassadors, missionaries, wherever you are, Filled with the Spirit of God, the same gospel that transforms people all over the globe is the gospel that transforms you. You are an ambassador to take it to those around you. Do you live in Nightdale, Garner, Durham, Cary, North Raleigh, Fuquay, downtown? I don't care. You're an ambassador there. You're an ambassador there. And you have the Spirit of God in you to give you all the power you need. To love and to speak the simple message of Jesus and let him do the work. You don't have to manipulate it. You don't have to force it. You just give it and you love. And watch God save. That should be our prayer. And this is what he is saying at the end. This is who he's praying for. He's praying for his church, a missionary people. That's you. That's me. Now, listen to what else he says. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, there was just a sense that their faith was notable in this city where faith was in everything else. Their faith was notable. There was a sense of willingness to even be persecuted and that their love for one another was so shocking, the testimony was getting out beyond the city. He was hearing about it. Oh God, may it be so here. And then verse 16, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, church. Now, this is a statement. It happens in the Bible. This is a statement of hyperbole. This is not that at every waking moment, in every thought that he has, he's always and only thinking about the Ephesian church and praying for them. Instead, it's a way of saying Whenever I have my time of prayer, I remember you. Whenever I sit down to pray, I remember you. I think on you. I call out for you. 
That's why he can say that for the church in Thessalonica and he can say it for the church in Ephesus. It's this sense of, I am calling out for you and remembering you in my prayers. Now look at verse 17. I'm remembering you in my prayers that this God that I'm praying to, the Father of glory, may give. Who's doing the giving? The Father. That's right. You're not doing the giving. Paul is praying because he can't give what he's asking for. Desperate people pray. Self-sufficiency doesn't pray. If you can do it in your own strength, you don't call out for someone else to do it for you. Self-sufficiency doesn't pray. Desperation prays. And that's where Paul is because he knows he cannot do what he's asking for. This is where we live. We live in this misunderstanding that we have control. And therefore, this sense of I can control this, it leads us to work more than we pray. And to try to manipulate it and to try to work it. And what happens is then we get fearful. I understand. I'm guilty of trying to control and getting fearful. As I know we all are. But desperate people. Those who know they can't fix it. Those who know that someone has to show up. Someone has to fight for you. You pray. I was talking to my wife and she teaches Bible at a school uh, here in town. Uh, and as she teaches 6th and 7th graders, she was uh, teaching on Second Kings. And as she was teaching, she was teaching a story about the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, coming in and attacking Hezekiah. Now, as only my wonderful, brilliant, great teaching, beautiful, my best friend wife can do, and there's a lot of other adjectives I'd love to give to her right now, but I won't. Um, she said, you know, this is Sennacherib. She says, the way you remember it is snatch a rib. You know, he snatches a rib. He's a bad guy. You don't want him to snatch your rib. So he's coming after these people. And yeah, I just love it. So anyway, when you're going through the story, what does Hezekiah do when he's told that Sennacherib is going to come? He stops and he prays. He stops and he prays. And as he stops, he just says, you've got to fight for me. You've got to do this. There was an acknowledgement that I cannot stop this mighty army from crushing me. The only option I have is the desperate option of God. If you don't show up, I will be crushed. And that is a, that is a microcosm of our lives. She went on to teach them this. When Sometimes when you teach your kids to pray, you might... Say, you know, okay, now put your hands together. Most of the time, at least when we said, now put your hands together, it was because they would fidget all over the place, you know. They would grab all kinds of things. And it was not because this makes you holy. It's because, good night, stop moving, you know, something like that. So it was like, okay, maybe it's even clasp the fingers so that you're not all squirmy, but let's do something with your hands. As you grow up, many times your prayer hands shift from this this why is that why is that because this 
is a representation of prayer. I have nothing in my hands to offer you. And oh God, I'm a recipient. Please give. It is desperation. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling, as one hymn writer said. Prayer is I am desperate. And I am a recipient. Oh God, be the giver in this moment. I need more of you. Give me more of you. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm crying out to you, I'm crying out to you, oh God, for this church, because you alone can give. What can he alone give? It says that he may give you a spirit, the Holy Spirit might give you wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. As you are pursuing knowing God, you need the Spirit of God to make you wise. The only place you grow in wisdom is in prayer and in the word. Hear me. You will not grow in wisdom by just textbooks and book smarts. You grow in wisdom through prayer, communing with God at his feet, on your face, in the word. There is where wisdom is birthed because that is a work of the spirit. says it right here. Oh God, he prays, would you help this people to know you by causing your spirit to give them wisdom and revealing to them what they can't see themselves. It's like peeling back the layers of an onion and and you can't do it. You need the, the scales to fall from the eyes. He even says here that you may have the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's a past tense reflection of what happened when you trusted in Jesus. It is, you were running from God, and God in his mercy did this to your eyes. And he caused you to see. And then he did something in here. And he caused your heart to love what you saw, namely Jesus himself. And when you loved him, you went like this, only to find out he already had his arms around you. And he was holding you up. This is faith. It's repentance is, no, I've been holding on to every other thing that is breaking down and not saving me. And this is faith. Oh, God, I need you. How did you do that? Because he opened your eyes. Because he said, Jesus is beautiful to my heart. The heart of stone became a heart of flesh. And you saw him and you loved him and you went like that. And it was all a work of God so that nobody can boast. You will not, as a follower of Jesus, say, look at how great I was to cling on to Christ. You will say, look at how merciful he was to cling on to me, to grab me, to hold me, and to never leave me. What he began, he will complete. This is what Paul is praying. Just as God awakened your eyes, may he do it again, moment by moment, over and over, until... You see him face to face by causing you to understand the Bible. And how do I know that to be true? Because he tells us. He tells us in another place, 1 Corinthians 2, that that's what he's doing. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and following. He says this. But as it is written, 
what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine it. You need somebody to help you. Well, who is that? Okay, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. That's how you know what God has for those who love him. The spirit teaches you. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thought of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit, that we might now understand. How do you understand the Bible? The spirit of God working to give understanding and they are freely given to us by God. Verse 13, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. God is with you. And Paul's prayer is that as he's with you, he would keep causing these revelations to happen. Your eyes keep seeing as you are in the Word. And he's praying. He's praying one request. That you might know him. Not just facts, but that you might know him. Do you hear this? More than what is your job, more than where financial security will rest, more than who will I marry, more than will they understand my perspective, more than what is my career, more than where will I live, the greatest need for everyone here, Paul prays right here, that we might know him. Let's make sure all these things that we pray for and God invites us to pray for them are secondary to the primary prayer. May we know him. May we know him. And quickly, here's what he says that we might know about him. A hope, a love, and a power. What is hope? And where do I get that? Look at verse 18. That you may know what is. This phrase, what is, begins and lets us know those three things are what he prays for. What is the hope? What are the riches? What is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power? What is? That you may know there is a hope to be had. Now, in the passage, it says, what is the hope to which he has called you? It gives us a little hint that there are some hopes that we can have that he hasn't called us to hope in. There's a hope he's called us to, and then there are hopes that he hasn't called us to. Like what? What can you set your hope on? You can set your hope on marriage, children, job. Financial security, church growth, career advancement. You can set your hope on all kinds of things. How do you know if you've set your hope on something ultimately that it has kind of smuggled its way in and replaced Jesus as your ultimate hope? How can you know? Well, there's some indicators in the heart, and here's one. It's fear. Whenever fear begins to bubble up in the heart, it could be telling you. It could be telling you that something is beginning to 
smuggle its way in and push out our primary hope in Jesus. I'm not saying that every single thing that you have ever feared has replaced Jesus. I'm just saying, here's what we have to do. We have to process our fears. Why are we afraid? Because our fears are talking to us. And they're telling us something. And they could be telling us that we've set our hope on something ultimately that should not be our hope. When we take the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, lay that before the Lord. What are our fears? The other indicator might be, what drives me? Ambition. Now, it is great that you have ambition in the workplace to do your job well, to understand how to do it better, a drive to have continuing education and to care for those that you work with. It is great that you have ambition to care for your family or to care for your roommates, that you would sacrifice and you would give your time and energy. But ambition, which is good, can become too much. And the way you begin to discern that is if you begin to sacrifice what is essential, time with Jesus, glorifying Jesus rather than glorifying ourselves, which is what we're tempted to do in those moments, those all begin to help us smell that something foul is in the air and we've set our hope on something else. And so at the Lord's table today, set your fears before him and set your ambitions before him. Ambition is a gift from God. Just don't let those ambitions replace the ultimate ambition of going after Christ. Here's what it says. There is a hope, a hope that will not disappoint. It's the hope to which you were called to. When you became a follower of Jesus and you were called, shout out, you come. He said, I believe. That's the call. It's a sense of a declaration of trust me. And you trust him and you love him and you changed. The call, the hope is I'm going to be with him one day. I'm going to be with him one day. That's our hope. And that's a hope that will not disappoint. And that's a hope that we constantly have to fight for in the here and now. This past week, I spent some time in the word just trying to process life. And as I was doing so, the Lord le- led me to Romans fifteen thirteen. Here's what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What did God do in my heart in that moment? If you've ever been hopeless, or discouraged, what happens? You've got to go to the God of hope. Once again, it's not something that I can create. I mean, hope! It doesn't happen that way. I wish it did. It's just like, hope! No, that's not how it rolls. Hope's got to come. Where's it going to come? I bow my face before the God of hope. And it says, may he, 
Fill me with joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace are like the caboose and faith is like the engine on the train. That when you trust in Christ and you say, God, I believe you, I trust you. I do not know what's going on, but I trust you. What accompanies that simple faith is joy. And what's pulled along is you constantly trust in him. That's peace. There's a stillness to the heart. The a level of joy rises in the soul, and that is a war, but it comes through trusting him and fighting for trust in his promises day by day. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes, and he makes hope abound. He will do that. It doesn't mean the circumstances will change. I don't know if you remember back when it snowed and we had to miss church, and I did this little five to seven minute little thing on my phone and I sent it out to the church. It was on Lamentations 3. I want you to think about that in light of what Paul is praying for, that you may know this God who births hope. Listen to how he talks. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. So what do you do? What do you do when you feel bereft of peace, hopeless, downcast, discouraged? I tell you, I memorized this passage because these next words were life-giving to me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Dear friends, (laughs) don't run past it. That is a war right there. You do not just go from I'm bereft of peace and I'm not happy and I ain't got no hope to now I hope by saying this I call to mind. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't just happen when you say, oh, okay, let's put something in my mind. Now I'm hopeful. That's not how it works. This is a war. It is a wrestle. It is a fight. It is a constant repetition in the brain and in the heart and the writing down and the praying out loud. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It doesn't stop. I believe in my hopelessness that it stopped and the wells run dry. It doesn't stop. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That means everything you will face. Hear that underscore it, exclamation point it. Everything you will face today, you have all the mercy you need for it today. You don't have mercy for tomorrow. So Jesus says, don't worry about that. You have it for today. All the mercy you need. You call that to mind and all of a sudden, In our weakness, hope begins to do this. It might take days. It might take weeks. It might take months. It might take years. God will cause hope to rise. Because that's what he does. He's the God of hope that makes hope abound. This is what Paul is praying. May my church know this God who promises hope. And that hope will never disappoint. You will get to the end. You will see him face to face. So even when you struggle for hope now, look there. It's going to happen. And that hope lets you know that in your darkest times you are loved. And that's what he says you need to know about your God. There is a hope to be had and there is a love to rest in. 
the good news, I've already preached a whole sermon on this at another time. A love to be rest, a love to rest in. Look at what he says. What are the riches, the wealth of the glorious inheritance in the saints? Whose inheritance is that? It's God's inheritance of us. I'm going to summarize it because I've already done it in a sentence. We are God's treasured possession. And Paul wants us to know that about God. That you are loved and you are adored and you are honored and you are secure and you are fought for. You are prayed for. You are sung over. That is who his children are. And don't let anything tell you differently. You are secure in his love, not because of what you have done for him, but because he's love. And when you fail, others around you and your own internal dialogue and the devil himself will want to say you are no longer loved. It is a lie from the pit of hell. You are loved not because of your goodness, but because of his mercy. Trust in him. By simple faith alone, you are loved. I have sent this verse to a ton of people because I have prayed this verse for so many people. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. And I want you just to listen to it in the light of you being loved by God. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Hear that? Fear not. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. That's not just for Israel. That's anybody who trusts in you. You, you, put your name there. You are mine. I've got you. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. And through the rivers, they're not going to overwhelm you, ultimately. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. The God of the universe says that to you right now. It's a love to rest in. It is a love to be had. And he wants you to sit there. And dwell on it. And so, not only are we to know his love, but we are also to know his power. Because, isn't it true, when you feel weary, you feel like there's no power. When you feel dry, you feel like there's no power. When you feel overwhelmed, you feel like everything else has the power but you. Paul says, I want you to know this about your God. That he is at work in you with inexhaustible power. I don't know if you've seen this, but look at what it says. I can't tell you how many more words you could find in the Greek language that say the word power this many ways. Immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. That means this power is only for believers according to working, great might with which he worked and raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. There's just this all kinds of power language going on. What is he saying? He's saying there's an inherent strength in God that is a force that is supreme over all other forces that is actively working for you and the potential of that power cannot be exhausted. 
As I was reading one commentator, he used the illustration of a bulldozer. So let's look at it. A bulldozer. There's one thing when you look at that bulldozer that you would say, it's more powerful than the car. Okay? I think, I think we're safe here. Okay? In a head-to-head match, there's one that has won. Okay? There's one that has won. Now, what we're looking at is, in and of itself, the bulldozer has the capacity to be powerful. It has that ability. By looking at it, you sense, man, it has that ability. So it has the ability, whether you look at it or not, you look at it and it's like, wow, that's powerful. And then you sit in it and you turn on the key and you hear the engine roar and it's like, that's power. And then you see it move and it crush a car or push over a tree and you said that power is at work. These are all the different types of power language that's used here for God. Except there's one problem. This bulldozer has limited power. That's why it says of our God, there's an immeasurable greatness. There's no limit to the power. So there's a God who has limitless power and he is fully powerful in and of himself. And when you stare at him, he is powerful. And then when you experience his power, he is even more powerful. And that power is just a small glimpse of the power that's out there because it's immeasurable. And why is that helpful? Because you and I feel like every circumstance has won. And so we despair. And here he says, I want you to know. I want you to know this God who is, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. I want you to know him. That's the God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power is at work in you today. Dear church, we want you to know him. The only way you know him is to bow your face before him. And he wants you to know that there's a hope to be had, a love to be rested in, and there's a power that is at work in you and for you and through you for the sake of his name. Let's pray.